Russian spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know Zyrus, I guarantee it, but you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. Hello and welcome to the 139th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. We've hit a heat wave here. Over the weekend, it was literally, fuck, in the negatives all weekend, right? Come Monday, now yeah. we're we're in the 30s and uh, it feels like a hot summer day outside compared to negative 10 so that's that's great how's the uh, weather in your neck of the woods i honestly i couldn't tell you i have not been outside pretty much for the past seven days so i have been uh been quarantining myself did you to a covid positive test okay i was gonna say i don't think you announced that last week i actually the day that we recorded last week was the monday night and you can tell that I it was pre me showing symptoms of COVID because you could still hear that my nose was congested. Um, but the fever that I had that kept me home from work on Wednesday and Thursday actually cleared all of that out. So it right. melted the snot out pretty much. But yeah, <laughs> I actually didn't have it the the last time that we recorded. Oh, I did have it, but I didn't know that I had it, basically. It didn't show up until Wednesday morning. Yeah, Omnicron, or Crone, however you say it, really ravaging the world right now. It seems like everybody's got goddamn COVID, or ha- at least, I don't know, there's been a lot of it, but it seems like people are finally recovering from it, from what I can tell. From what you were telling me, does not sound like a pleasant experience. Well, it's not quite the two weeks of sickness like you've been hearing you know, a year ago when this shit started, you would hear people who were sick for one to three weeks, just constantly sick. This is just a quick, it was a 36 hour thing, but it was one of the most like sickest I've ever been in my entire life in that shortest period of time. Like my fever got up to, I would say about almost probably 103.2, something like that was the most that I recorded it at. And I was just bedridden, just completely. I was covered in two comforters and a few blankets with the heat on. I was, I had chills so bad. Dude, I hate chills so fucking bad. They are the most annoying thing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, definitely. Back when I used to get sinus infections a lot, you'd always get the lower back pain and then the goddamn chills. Ugh, Ugh, I hate that so much. It's miserable. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you made a recovery. Didn't you? I remember this is a long time ago. Didn't you catch I think it's called rhinovirus? Um, well, back when I was in college, I caught something called the rotovirus. Roto. Basically basically just throwing up and you're basically just living in the bathroom for a week, which is what I basically was doing. It was horrible. God awful bad. I yeah. I always remember 
when because I think I was living up here and you were yeah in in Iowa still and you got that and I remember talking to you and you're like you were basically dead for three days and just <laughs> nobody you know it was bad I remember you telling me how bad that was yeah, my roommates basically moved out of the dorm for those three days and some of the nicer ones were considering actually calling the hospital to see if they should bring me in but I ended up getting better for it you know better after a few days also it was in my younger days so I was a little bit able to you know bounce back a little better but <laughs> yeah that that time was pretty rough so uh one more uh quick thing before we get in the episode here we need to talk about I did not watch the game the Alabama Georgia game but I'm not gonna lie little surprising of an outcome isn't it yeah, it was. I mean, I kind of, I knew that Georgia could do it. I just knew it was pretty unlikely. I was really surprised that it was almost like a Big Ten game. Kind of low scoring, defensive battle. You know, they kind of took the quarterbacks out of it for the first three quarters. It was just field goals, pretty much. But yeah, I mean, Georgia, they came back. They have like uh, probably one of the better teams that's, you know, every, they say it every year. Like, oh, is this the best college football team to ever play? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. They just have so many five-star recruits coming in every year. They're bound to do this, you know, at some point. So, good on them, though. They beat Alabama. The fucking demon Nick Saban. They slayed <laughs> the beast, so. Uh, yeah, uh, I read today that one of the tackles for Alabama, I don't know. They said he was 350 pounds, big boy. Could be the first overall pick in this year's draft. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what everybody's saying. Did you see this mammoth of a man? Yes, I did. He's actually, he's pretty good. Um, there's another guy, he plays for Michigan. He's what He's their best defensive player. They're saying he might also be the number one draft pick too. So it looks like it's going to be a, uh, a defender who's going to go number one this next year. There's some really good defenses out there, though. This kind of this whole season was marked by really good defenses. Well, uh, you know, the Vikings fired their coach and GM, so and hopefully yes. we'll be getting rid of Kirk Cousins. That's my that's my wish. I hope they yeah. do because I'm tired of him and I think he's annoying. So the draft will be a big year for my favorite football club, which always breaks my heart but uh well sadly sadly they just did good enough so that their pick isn't going to be very good sadly they didn't just completely dump their whole season trying to get a good pick well the good news is they picked 12th and the quarterbacks aren't real strong so technically i think they'd be in the position to get one of them if any of them are worth a damn but uh you can never tell true but uh anyway phil why don't you take this episode by the uh, horns and lead us on a delectable tale here all right when it comes to military strongmen and dictators in general the ideal of the self-made man rising from obscurity to wrangle the reins of power has personified many rising leaders in the region of latin america always coupled of course with the kind of violence and democratic subversion that was really a sign at the times for the political landscape of the mid to late 20th century. This was pushed forward by the intelligence communities of the United States and the Soviet Union battling it out for ideological supremacy on the world stage. You know what, sometimes Phil, you, you write these paragraphs and it sounds like you probably should have been a, uh, 
a history teacher of some sort because it's a brilliant statement you just made and it slightly confuses me. Yeah, someday, if I feel like it, I'll go and, you know, become a history professor, but not today. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, really in that statement, kind of what I'm getting at is that these self-made strongmen really kind of took over, sometimes referred to as banana republics, these small Latin American dictatorships that kind of pushed themselves off as democracies, uh, backed either by the United States or by the Soviet Union, kind of almost little pawns on the world stage of the chessboard. Any idea why they call it a banana? A banana republic? Well, a lot of these little countries were controlled. One of the big cartels or companies that controlled these countries was called United Fruit. And that's actually the country that we're talking about today was partially controlled by United Fruit. At least their uh, labor was. Okay, interesting. I believe United Fruit turned into Chiquita. If I'm not, <laughs> I believe so. I'd have to look it up. But just off the top of my head, I believe it is Chiquita. So maybe instead of the banana on the label, they should put corpses of uh, dead people. Yes, of <laughs> of maimed and uh, underpaid workers. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. One of these leaders whose power peaked during the time of the Reagan administration, straddled that line between friendship with the West and with the communists. On one hand, making himself an ally to anti-leftist fighters supported by the Reagan and Bush administrations, but at the same time, supporting Cuban interests against the United States. All the while, though, enriching himself with the Colombian drug money that was filtering in from the United States, becoming the preferred private banker of drug kingpins and cartel chiefs throughout the American-Colombian cocaine pipeline. I am, of course, talking about the strongman of Panama during the 1980s, Manuel Noriega. Okay, so this is kind of how... He helped the country by allowing the drug kingpins and cartels to kind of filter their money through his country without any sort of interruption? Well, that's one of the things that he did. Uh, one of the big kind of pipelines for money is that he and his predecessor actually allowed a lot of these strongmen in Latin America, a lot of these cartel leaders, drug kingpins, to filter their money through Panamanian banks. Really, I mean, if you ever watch the movie Blow, the main character in that movie has a bank account in Panama. So. Right. And I feel like that's a cliche saying, isn't it? Like a secret Panamanian bank account or offshore bank account in Panama or some shit like that? Yes. Yeah, it actually, it did because it was so well known that... All of this money was getting filtered through the banks of that country. Eventually, he would go on to nationalize the banks. A lot of them actually would take their money out of those banks because they were worried that Noriega was going to steal it. <laughs> Speaking of that quickly, Ozark comes back, I think, in two weeks. So I'm a little pumped okay. about that. Did you watch that show? I've seen a few of the episodes. I haven't watched it all the way through. I gotcha. keep getting told to watch it. So Money laundering, kind of at the core yep. of it, so... Anyway, continue on. Manuel Antonio Noriega, born in a Panama City slum named El Terraplen de San Felipe, 
during the 1930s, though the exact date really is in dispute of his birth. This either took place in 1934, 1936, or possibly 1938, depending on who you ask or maybe which legal document you read. Manuel Noriega was born out of wedlock to a mixed-race mother of African and indigenous heritage and a father whom he actually wouldn't meet until later on in his life. His birth would give him a mestizo racial classification, which would actually mark him with the status of a second-class citizen all the way from the time he was born. So Panama at this time had a little bit of a nationalist viewpoint. People as like second-class citizens and stuff like that. There's always been racial disparity between people who were seen as more with a European background and people who maybe had more of a mixed race heritage, like African or indigenous heritage. Gotcha. Okay. I'm pretty sure I know what Noriega looks like. I I think it was Amazon Prime had like this dictators show on there and they had one about him. He reminds me of a wrestler that was popular in the 90s on WWF but I cannot remember what the guy's name was. He he was in the crowd with Rocky Maivia or The Rock. Can't think of his name. It's not important, but... Uh, Baruch? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. He looked like one of them. Okay. <laughs> he looked like part of the Nation of Domination. Yeah, one of the wrestlers in there, I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Maybe I it'll come to me. I think you're thinking of somebody else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... He, this, so Manuel Noriega, if you look at a picture of him, and we'll post a picture of him on Instagram, he is quite unattractive. Yeah. Uh, he's got he a- actually, he, he garners a, the nickname uh, Pineapple Face because of the <laughs> pockmarked face from childhood acne. I was gonna, he has a creepy mustache too, right? I'm not sure um, if, I'm not sure which picture you're thinking of. I do believe he has one of those like pencil thin mustaches. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. The yeah. molester mustache. Yeah, at different times, he kind of looked different. So you got to, um, he was obviously, I've been looking at pictures of him for the past, you know, week. So I've been mostly looking at the pictures of him when he was taken into custody by the U.S. So. <laughs> okay. And he was he was older at that time. Like I previously mentioned, his mother and father were not married, uh, not meeting his father, accountant Ricarte Noriega, until actually his teenage years. And his mother, described as a cook and a laundress, according to some accounts, would also die before Emmanuel had actually reached the age of five years old. Though some sources say that he was maybe given away and would ultimately be raised by a school teacher named Luisa Sanchez, whom had made sure that his education was made a priority. So it's not sure if his mother died or if he was given away, but he definitely was raised by Luisa Sanchez. Wow, okay. This is interesting. Um, Did you listen to the last last podcast in the left episode? Possibly. What was it about? It was the Mexican granny killer, and the killer was the luchador wrestler. Were they... Oh, I have, I've heard of her before. Yeah. I've... So in that episode, they said she was given away for three bottles of beer. Yeah, she was a child prostitute, basically, kind of sold into the sex trafficking, like sex slavery. Yeah, so interesting uh, that I mean, what what do you feel like he his mom died or was given away? What do you what do you lean on? Uh, I think it's more that his mom died. 
That's what I think happened. Okay. Um, It's kind of one of those deals where there's a lot of rumors because he grew up in such a poor neighborhood so long ago that really they're taking accounts from people who were probably in their 70s who were like childhood peers of his. So who really knows kind of situation. Gotcha. Though his adoptive mother had made sure that he was always clean and very well dressed. Manuel never really made a lot of friends during his early education. This was due in part to his crippling shyness and, like I mentioned, a terrible case of childhood acne that left his face pockmarked. Though he would receive excellent grades while in school, going on actually to be admitted to a very prestigious Panamanian high school, the Institut de Nationale, when he was 13 years old. So he did do pretty well in school, even though... Maybe he was kind of a shy kid, more of a wallflower. It's uh, interesting to think that a shy kid with acne turned into quite a monster, actually. Yeah, I mean, you're going to kind of hear about some of the early stuff that he did when he was a young adult and some of the monstrous things that he did. But it does, you do kind of like reading about serial killers and, you know, people who have these horrible criminal records. You do hear a lot of like parallels in kind of like childhood rejection, not having many friends, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so. yeah, that's right. During his time at the Institute, Manuel would make a friend that would actually turn out to be his half-brother. This young boy's name was Luis Carlos Noriega, and through him, he would actually meet his real-life father and the rest of his family on his father's side though they were not at all accepting of him, and he would only really make a relationship out of his half-brother, Luis Carlos. Luis Carlos was actually kind of a black sheep of his family, too, so that's kind of maybe why they bonded so well. So were they friends first, and then they're like, oh shit, we're brothers, or...? So they were friends at first, and then it turns out that one of their mutual friends actually said that Manuel Noriega kind of looked like Luis's dad, like a younger version of Luis's dad. So that's kind of how they figured it out, you know, mm-hmm. that it was actually his father. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But he was born out of wedlock. One of those deals, too, where racism kind of probably had a thing to do with it, as Manuel's mother was mixed race. So kind of that situation. And also, obviously... Any time that this situation happens, there's not a lot of accepting of these half-brothers and sisters that come from relationships out of wedlock, even today. So at that time, there's a lot of uh, religious fervor. You know, usually isn't that behind the, like, disgrace of having children out of wedlock? Yeah. Well, there. I mean, obviously, it's Latin America, so it's going to be pretty heavily, you know, bombarded by... Christianity, Catholicism, but there was also Luis Carlos. One of the reasons why he was kind of the black sheep of the family was he was openly gay and the family was like very Christian conservative. So I'm guessing that if they were Christian conservative, they would kind of, you know, not want to admit that their father had had this relationship outside of marriage. And Noriega was accepting of him, even though he was gay, huh? Of his kid? No. Or uh, you're talking about Manuel Noriega. Noriega. Okay. Yeah. So all three of them have the same last name. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Our main character of today's episode 
was friends with Louise, who was a gay man, right? Yeah, they were teenagers at the time. So yeah, he basically was only be mostly, I'm guessing, because he didn't have a lot of friends. And Luis Carlos probably would have been his best connected friend. Uh, connections were really important during this time in Panama. Probably still are today. Gotcha. Okay. So both Manuel and Luis would get into student politics during their time in high school, the two teens becoming figures in a movement to stop the signing of a treaty that would have given the United States near-definite control of the Panama Canal. Now, with Manuel's outgoing half-brother Luis Carlos becoming a leader of the student movement against the treaty's ratification, uh, Manuel would actually be kind of taken along for the ride. And this would happen a lot in Manuel Noriega's lifetime. Okay, so he wasn't the leader necessarily, but he kind of got drug into it. Is that kind of what you were saying? He wasn't the main leader of this group. He kind of latched on with his half-brother. Gotcha, okay. I mean, it's just so interesting to think about that, especially how we know this kind of ends up. Yeah, Manuel Noriega, He's even when he's the most powerful man in Panama, he's never the front man. He always does his shit from the shadows. He always fucks from the bottom. You know, that kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. After graduating high school in 1953, Manuel Noriega was somewhat rudderless, really without any connections in his family to speak of to get him into any kind of prestigious university that he would have needed. He was unable to follow his dream of becoming a psychiatrist, and he actually once again had to fall back on his relationship with his half-brother, Luis Carlos. Now, Luis would actually have a letter of recommendation typed up by his powerful boss, Aquilino Boyd, the Panamanian foreign minister, which would gain Manuel Noriega entrance into a very prestigious school in Lima, Peru, known as the Chorillos Military School. Okay, interesting. So his uh, half-brother was quite connected. Is this because of his... The movements Louise was in, is that kind of how you think he met this guy? So it was a few different things. Like I said before, very outgoing, very gregarious. He did gain a lot of fame because of his work in the student movement. Also, his family was more connected, which opened up more opportunities for him. It was all about family connections, who you know. You know, kind of a nepotistic sort of system. Also, skin color probably had to do a lot with it against Manuel Noriega, too. So, like, throughout his life, people constantly mention how he's doing so well for himself, even though basically the color of his skin kind of situation. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Before going to the Trios Military School in 1958, Manuel Noriega was a practicing socialist and also... Kind of like anti-militaristic in nature, even believing that the military was far too powerful and that it really should be dismantled. Though after his education at the military academy, Manuel would find himself firmly leaning towards the right and now highly militaristic. He's not a uh, he's not a a, uh, (laughs) a commie. Yeah. Okay. No, he. Okay, yes, I'm just sorry. I, that took me a minute. A bleeding heart liberal, that's what I was thinking of. No. I don't know he why was, it took he was me, no I don't know why it took that? me so long to uh for that word to pop up in my head. Yeah. No, he so he was originally kind of more liberal, 
maybe not a bleeding heart liberal, but he was more a liberal. But then after he went to that military school, I think he kind of saw where his future was going and he knew what was going to butter his bread. So what what type of a country was Panama right now? Was it a more socialist country? I would say during the mid 1950s, they were pretty much controlled by the military and foreign interests. So they were there was still a civilian government kind of at the at the forefront there was a democratic election for civilian government. Uh, mostly, though, it was controlled. You have to remember, the Panama Canal was the most important thing in Panama. It's what's actually got the country of Panama freed from Colombia. Gotcha. So it's it's foreign interests, and it's the military that control this country. Okay, all right. During his time as a student at the Chorios Military Academy is when the CIA allegedly... Now, there's different times that this happened in different accounts, but this is one of the times when the CIA allegedly began to recruit some cadets inside of the Latin American military academies, like the one in Chorios. And this was obviously to bring in future agents. Uh, one of these students tapped was supposedly Manuel Noriega. Now, this budding relationship with the CIA would attribute to much of the future strongman's highly highly increased influence over his country and the people inside and outside of his country in Latin America. This would also help him cover up many of the bad deeds that he perpetrated that really should have made him face some prison time. Though it wouldn't just be the CIA that aided in keeping Noriega's head above water. So what exactly were they getting these students for? Anti-communism. Gotcha. Okay. And if we believe this, Noriega kind of backfired on him? Well, you've got to realize the reason why he was in such good standing with the CIA for decades was because he was such a good operative and agent for them. Uh, I'll, I'll mention it kind of in the next few paragraphs, but he was very useful, a high, high value asset for the CIA and for the American intelligence agencies. Okay, but the, there's no confirmation that he was specifically with them, right? No, there's confirmation that he was working with the CIA. It's just not confirmed exactly when he started. So some people believe that it happened while he was the right-hand man of the dictator in the 1970s. Some people believe that it happened during this time right now. Some people believe it happened when he was in the National Guard. There's three different times when people think it could have started. This is one of them. People believe it's kind of one of those deals where it's the CIA, so it's not like things are like written down, you know, ironclad, set in stone situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. But it's believed that there was a recruitment drive for these cadets in these military academies and that he was one of the cadets that was recruited. Gotcha. And I'm assuming we have, we're going to find out a little bit more information about him and the CIA. Yes, and uh, kind of his work with them. So one of Manuel Noriego's first assignments for the CIA was to spy on his fellow cadets at that academy. Uh, even going as far, allegedly, as to listen in on conversations between students happening in class, at political rallies, also at bars and at parties. 
uh, only really to go back later to his room and write all of these conversations down, reporting them to his CIA handlers. Now, in order to accomplish these tasks, Manuel Noriega had called upon one of his best abilities, which was that he was a lifelong introvert, and also that he had an excellent memory. He did this to act as a fly in the wall and to soak up intel without the targets even realizing that they were being spied on. Only later to that night, to go back and transcribe everything that he heard from memory nearly verbatim. Wow, okay. Uh, so they really did put him to work then. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you believe these stories or these reports, it's all alleged because who knows, you know, if it's true or not. But he did the thing where he's the quiet guy sitting in the corner kind of listening in on people's conversations. Or he could be in your group and he's just kind of, he's not even like a person you're talking to. He's just a fixture in the group. And then all of a sudden, whatever you said goes straight back to the CIA. So, you know. Like, imagine all the little, you know, stupid drunk conversations where maybe you were a little bit more boisterous than you should have been. That would go straight back to the CIA if Manuel Noriega was in that group. Well, uh, this is an important lesson to you, Phil, when you are out and about being social. Say you're at a bar, uh, you see someone quietly sitting amongst themselves, they are probably reporting you to the uh, CIA, especially if you start talking about subliminal deception. Yeah, well, now you don't need to have these people anymore because we all have phones in our pockets. Hey, so. you know what? There might be some CIA grassroots efforts where they want to go back to the old way. They're doing it old school? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, after his graduation from the Charles Military Academy, Manuel would actually move back to Panama from Peru. This is where the CIA would set him up with his first real job. And this was at the Panama Canal, acting as a surveyor. Though, in actuality, he was spying on the Panamanian workers in the canal zone, looking out for any leftist actors among the ranks of non-American lower-class national workers. That surveyor job that he had gotten was actually much more high-profile than any other Panamanian could have gotten. The most well-paid and highest prestige jobs were actually reserved for American transplanted workers in Panama working in the canal zone. The living areas inside of the canal zone were actually towns based on middle America for Americans. So they could have a regular old Cresco, Iowa in the canal zone then, huh? Oh, definitely. I imagine (laughs) fat chicks and all. (laughs) Uh, It even has the world famous, I can't remember the name of any of the bars, but I'm sure they're there. Oh, and God, the Catholic the churches. Hideaway. The Catholic churches, too. Probably definitely some churches. I don't know about Catholic churches. <laughs> you know, they were uh, they were a little bit anti-Catholic at that time. Probably mostly ah, Protestant, but... Gotcha. Yeah. In 1962, Manuel Noriega would have a chance meeting with a captain of the Panamanian National Guard, Omar Torrios. And after a few hours of drinking, the two would actually have some pretty good conversations about the Panamanian military, where they thought the country was going, Omar would actually tell Manuel to quit his job at the canal and come work for him until he would eventually offer him a commission in the Panamanian National Guard. That commission would turn out to be a second lieutenant officer spot, which he would get in September 1962. Now, working directly under Omar Torrios, 
he would be stationed inside the city of Cologne. The job that he would do before joining the National Guard would actually be as a collector for Omar Torrios' network of prostitutes that he was pimping out inside the city. So he is the captain of the National Guard and also a pimp. Yes. He used... Interesting. Um, yeah, one hand kind of rubbed the other in that situation of kind of he used his power in one arena to gain power in another. Can you imagine if like General Patton was also a pimp with a lot of sex workers under his wing? Oh, definitely. I mean, obviously in America, that sort of thing wouldn't be going on. But when you're talking about these, you know, tiny little Latin American republics, it was just a free for all. Yeah. And also the... U.S. military seems to have a very strong religious background for a lot of people. So, uh, you know, there's like the, what is the the word? Like the, I don't know what I'm saying. Like the purity beliefs and all of that shit. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And there's definitely a lot of, um, whenever you have these networks of soldiers kind of doing these bad, bad works, these kind of, you know, maybe doing a little bit of like even you consider maybe gang activity, breaking the law, all that stuff. There's always some other soldier or some group of soldiers who rat them out. Yeah, so there's kind of like an esprit de corps to kind of somebody's going to have a conscience, basically. So. Yeah, that's why I would recommend everybody watch Kill Team, the documentary. It was on Amazon Prime. I don't think it is anymore, but uh quite good about the squadron of marines i believe who were killing uh innocent civilians in afghanistan uh, very very scary documentary they do eventually get ratted out yeah uh i mean eventually it's gonna happen you know united states military you can only you know kind of hide that shit for so long before someone's gonna figure it out right now working with torrios uh first for his criminal empire, then in the Panamanian National Guard, would gain Noriega the kind of prestige that his lower birth status had always denied him, though the blanket protection that Torrios would give Noriega would allow him to commit whatever crimes he really wanted, often with little to no punishment. So it also allowed Noriega to continue building his spy and extortion network. So a uh, few things here. Noriega, the most I know about him is from that TV show, and he has some pretty horrendous crimes. I'm not sure how far you're going to go into him, but uh, yeah, he is a sick son of a bitch. Also, Noriega must have been quite charismatic to impress uh, this captain, wouldn't you say? Initially, I Yes. Mean. Well, it's kind of, he he enters in these symbiotic relationships throughout his life. Where someone who's important and gregarious and, you know, charismatic will see him as kind of, you know, a henchman-like figure. Kind of like how an introvert is taken in by an extrovert. Kind of to, you know, they work as a team almost. That's kind yeah. of what happens with Noriega a lot. First with Luis Carlos and then with Omar Torrios. Omar right. Torrios is going to end eventually become dictator of the country. And use men like Manuel Noriega, especially Noriega, kind of as his henchman-like figure. Gotcha. Okay. I like that analogy, by the way, Phil. The uh, Definitely. The extrovert using the introvert 
But in the end, the introvert actually is using the extrovert, uh, but they don't know it. That's my theory. Basically, yeah. It's one of those deals where there's roles that either two, you know, is really good at taking care of, but the other one, like, just can't do it. And they, you know, it seems like the extrovert's kind of taking advantage of the introvert, but really, the, uh, the introvert's just kind of latched on. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, with his place next to Omar Torrios and his position in the Panamanian National Guard really locked in, Manuel would begin to find the confidence that he had lacked his entire life, though the sting of a lifetime full of rejections due to his pineapple face appearance and his low societal standing would attribute, probably in my opinion, to his future bad actions and his reactions to perceived slights that he would feel for the remainder of his life. He'd get triggered really easy, you're saying, by certain things. Oh, yes, definitely. Any kind of, you know, any kind of bad feeling he gets, he always reacts. Just, he takes it to 11 every single time. Right. Now, working with Torrios in collections, Manuel Noriega was actually seen beating and sexually assaulting a prostitute in the back of a police car. This would nearly end his career working alongside Omar Torrios and the Panamanian National Guard. Though Torrios would come to his aid and cover up the assault, though he would keep him in a diminished role working as the transit chief. Noriega, though would get back on his feet very quickly and use his new position inside the city government to continue to build his own criminal and espionage empire. So basically, he took that negative into a positive of being demoted. And Omar Torrios, even though really with his drinking and with all the violence he was doing, he should have gotten rid of him. There were people he worked with who claimed that they were telling him to cut this guy off. But he saw him as so useful. And that's going to be a reoccurring theme with Manuel Noriega. People either in the CIA or in the Panamanian government keep him along for the ride, even though they should really cut him loose. I find it interesting. Obviously, the beating and sexual assaulting of the sex workers horrendous. But yes. I'm really shocked that people like this Omar even gave a shit. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where imagine if you were working with someone and you found this out, it would be horrendous. I mean, as a human being, you're hearing these stories and this was in front of witnesses too. This was one of his more, the crimes that he, he didn't do this one in private like he would in his earlier life. He was doing this out in public. It was becoming kind of a thing where he wasn't even hiding it after a while. Well, it just seems like Omar doesn't exactly have a moral compass of his own, so... But maybe... Oh! Go ahead. Oh, it's definitely damaged. Yeah, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, his moral compass definitely isn't, you know... He's not the most moral person on Earth, especially after he's running a... If you're running a network of prostitutes in a city, you're probably not the most moral person on Earth anyway. Do you think he did this to try to keep public opinion high of himself omar torrios yeah oh definitely it would have been a it would have been a blight on his persona to have one of his top guys um found out you know doing this shit so that's another reason probably why it got covered up gotcha okay yeah now that instance however hadn't been the first time that manuel noriega had taken his anger out on a sex worker 
as in 1960, while on leave from the Chorillos Military Academy in the city of Lima, Peru. Manuel and some of his fellow cadets went out to a bar, kind of like really spruced up in their white dress uniforms, especially Manuel with the money that he was getting from the CIA. It said that he took a lot of pride in his uniform and kind of getting himself all of the little accoutrement that would have shown that he was more important maybe than some of the other cadets. He and his friends went out drinking and dancing throughout the night until one of the men in their group pointed out a sex worker at the bar and the friends decided that they would actually share the young woman throughout the night. So when it was finally Manuel's turn with the prostitute, she took one look at his pot-marked face and his appearance and decided that her rates had suddenly substantially increased compared to his more attractive, lighter-skinned friends. Okay, so... Okay, I... I have a feeling I know where this is about to go. Um, yeah, it's... It's, uh... Well, I'll let you finish the story, then I'll kind of give what I've heard about the types of crimes this guy seems to commit over and over. Oh, yeah, definitely. So besides the fact that her rates went up so much that he couldn't afford it, which is probably the reason why, you know, her rates went up so bad was because she didn't want to have anything really, you know, she didn't want to service him at all. Uh, Also, though, this completely embarrassed Manuel Noriega in front of his friends. Apparently, from what I was reading, all of the cadets at the school would have been really catty and would have kind of, you know, talked about him behind his back with this situation. Manuel called upon the hate and rejection that he had suffered throughout his entire life, uh, grabbing this young woman and pulling her into an empty room in the club, later bragging to his friends that he had pummeled her to the ground and beaten her unconscious, after which he had raped her and left her near dead on the floor. Jesus, what a, uh, yeah. he's a, he's a sick bastard. This is kind of, from the show I watched about him, he seemed to be really into the sexual crimes, um, yes. kind of like this. This is a uh, poor young girl. That is, uh, that's horrible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, leaving her on the ground, basically just going back amongst his business. It's just such a, you almost think that it's almost crazy that he went on to have a wife at all. If he would have been like this, you know, in the United States, he would have, you would have, heard me say probably, and then he went to jail for 10 years, or, and then he, that started his life of crime. But in reality, he just keeps having things covered up for him. Right. So he just keeps on going, you know. What year is this right now, the 60s? This is the, ooh. I'm pretty so this sure. Is 19, this is 1960. Summer of 1960. This is happening. I'm just going to correct you here, Phil. 1960, I don't know if, uh, they weren't really paying attention to crimes like this quite as as much as they do now. So modern day, he'd definitely be in jail. 1960s, oh, yeah. I don't know. But either way, it's a horrendous crime. Yeah, well, that is true. If he would have done it in the 1960s in America to a sex worker, then depending on his social status, if he would have been poor and ugly, I do think that he would have went to jail. If he would have been attractive and well-connected, I think he would have been just fine, probably, would have, in America. Would have went on to become a uh, a senator or a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, probably a Supreme Court justice yeah. in that situation if he was well-connected. 
Now, like I mentioned at the time, he was recruited by the CIA kind of as an asset of theirs. And it turns out he was perceived by the U.S. intelligence service as a high enough value asset that when the news of his violent assault on the young woman reached his handlers, absolutely no punishment at all was brought down upon him. And his place as an informant was kept in place by his superiors. Yikes, they really uh, swept that under the rug, didn't they? Yeah, basically, it was for them, it was just doing nothing at all. So, really, you know, I don't know if she even reported the crime or if it just kind of went away. It's one of those situations. Mm. Now, one of the highest profile crimes perpetrated by Noriega in his early career involved using his position as transit chief actually have his own drivers abduct some political rivals of his boss, Omar Torrios. Now, shortly after, his political rivals had blown up some power transformers during election. He had his drivers pick them up and divert them instead to jail, opposed to where they were really wanting to go. Now, this is where his own henchmen assaulted, and even in some instances, sexually assaulted the men with Coke bottles right in front of Noriega. This would force Manuel Noriega to go into hiding for a short period of time, though he would return after his crimes. Uh, Once again, these were covered up by his patron, Omar Torrios. Holy shit. Did he do this on the orders of Torrios? Well, Omar Torrios had given him orders to kind of take care of his political rivals, which is kind of one of Manuel Noriega's specialties. But it's not exactly, I'm not exactly sure if Omar Torrios told him to do this, but this is just what he did. He had the men abducted, taken to a secret prison, and then, you know, assaulted by his henchmen. I mean, yeah, I I mean, I'm getting the impression Omar's kind of a, a piece of shit too, but goddamn, I don't know if he'd tell him to sexually assault him with a Coke bottle. Yeah, so definitely Omar Torrios keeps his hands clean of all of the bad shit by having Manuel Noriega do all of his dirty work. So he always comes out looking squeaky clean because he's able to cover up the crimes of his subordinate, and it never comes out that he actually did any of this stuff or ordered this stuff to happen. And that's throughout his entire dictatorship, too, until his death. I suppose that is kind of a dictator move. Oh, yeah, having, I mean, it's even, you even see that with, like, throughout the Nazi regime with Hitler. A lot of that horrible stuff he did, it came at the orders of Hitler to do something. But all of the little bits and pieces, you know, the kind of mundane little things were done because of his henchmen and what his henchmen, how they decided to carry out these orders. Right. So. Like Paul Bearer technically told the Undertaker to do those things, of right? Course. Yeah. Yes. Same thing. He used, he used the Undertaker, Kane, and Mankind. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Bastard Paul Bearer. He's behind it all. Definitely. We actually just got a really bad review telling us that we should only stick to talking about wrestling. So, <laughs> yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, Jenny. Now, throughout Manuel Noriega's early career, Omar Torrios would continually cover up the crimes of his young henchmen. This was in order to keep the highly useful operative under his thumb. Uh, giving him really just kind of small slaps on the wrist for these prolific instances of violence and excessive drinking. 
However, though, an incident in 1966 involving the rape of a 13-year-old girl and the assault of her brother forced Rios to send Manuel Noriega to a remote base up north in what was known as the North Zone. Though, he would actually just give him a promotion to first lieutenant during his time at this posting. Rios would put him under the command of a new commanding officer. Uh, this commanding officer would demand that Manuel Noriega show a lot more discipline than he had with Omar Torrios. Oh, Jesus, again with the raping. Man, this guy, yes. I I don't know. He That was like the one thing that stuck out to me about him. It's just a lot of raping with him. Um, I'm sure all dictators do it, but it seems like with him, it's a lot more prevalent. Yeah, it's the, the violent assaults that really, it, the, the crazy thing is, before I'd done a lot of the studying for this episode, I didn't know, I knew it happened with him a little bit, but I didn't know, like, how much he was known for it. So, yeah, kind of the crazy thing. Yeah, he, he, I would guess that was kind of his thing even before he's gotten into these, uh, I guess, forms of power or whatever level of power he has right now. Yeah, the crazy thing is you can't really find many of these stories very easily after Omar Torrios actually takes power and then he becomes like the chief intelligence officer. I imagine they're still happening. I'm just guessing that they were like a much better job of covering this stuff up or killing any witnesses or silencing any witnesses happened. Because after this instance and he gets a, when he gets a brand new commanding officer you don't really hear any more stories of this coming out yeah so, but you have to imagine it still probably happened oh especially for sure. when he was dictator so for sure they're just sweeping it under the rug just doing a better job of covering it up yeah, yeah. now while working as an intelligence officer under the command of his new commanding officer boris martinez manuel would begin keeping tabs on communist labor union movements by peasant workers for the company I mentioned before, United Fruit Company. He would keep tabs not only for his anti-communist boss, Boris Martinez, but of course, also the CIA. This would further elevate his status as a high-value intelligence operative for the CIA. Also, they were seeing him really as a rising star in the Panamanian military. Hmm. Is it just me or does Boris Martinez sound like a Russian person? A little bit, yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> he does have the last name Martinez, but it's it's kind of weird because you do every once in a while hear names where it kind of sounds like, well, that person's grandpa probably, you know, maybe maybe fled Europe at some point. So, true, true. Yeah, it was at this time when Manuel Noriega would begin taking classes at the now infamous School of the Americas located at the U.S. military base Fort Gulick in the canal zone of the Panama Canal. He would take classes on many different subjects like jungle warfare, counterintelligence, uh, regular intelligence, and also infantry command and training. This relationship with the School of the Americas would continue even after Noriega had taken charge of Panama, Oftentimes, Panamanian military officials would be given free classes throughout his dictatorship. Okay, so this isn't, uh, I was kind of like, why is this an infamous school? But now I see <laughs> why, yeah. it, why it's an infamous school. It was basically the Americans 
uh, giving military training to these anti-leftist uh, fighters in order to help them fight uh, communism, you know, south of the border. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that... Man, I, I don't know if they still do stuff like this, but kind of fucked up. Just to stop their fear of communism. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to have useful assets in other countries come and, like, learn from you. And you also, it's also a good opportunity to have them network with other very important people. Like, you'll look at some of the graduates of these, of these schools, like some of the military academies, the School of the Americas. You'll look at graduates from these classes and you'll be like, oh, shit, general in charge of a whole military, dictator of a country, dictator of a country, you know, high value asset. This guy, you hear about them in history and it's like, goddamn, like everyone from these classes went on to do something big. Right. Or you don't hear about them, but you really should. But it was all kept under the rug. Mm. While Manuel Noriega's patron, Omar Torrios, ascended the ranks of the military political system to general, Manuel was taken along for the ride. And after Torrios took power in a 1968 coup d'etat against newly elected president Arnulfo Arias Madrid, Manuel would be promoted to lieutenant colonel and elevated to the position of military chief. Uh, This is where he would utilize his previously formed networks of assets, along with his training and connections from and to the CIA as well, to keep Omar Torrios in charge of that country. He actually would thwart a 1969 coup attempt to overthrow Torrios while Torrios was on vacation in Mexico. While at the side of Torrios, Noriega would begin straddling the line between the different factions among the West, the communists, and the growing drug cartels, more importantly. So he he's starting to do that, but his but Omar isn't necessarily doing that. Is that am I reading that right? Like he's well, trying to play he's trying to play all sides, is what I'm gathering here. And Omar isn't necessarily doing that, right? Well, he's kind of doing it for Omar Torrios. Gotcha. So building the connections with the drug cartels, um, opening up the banks to kind of take in drug money, this is all kind of funding the government. But it's mostly Manuel Noriega, you know, behind the scenes making these connections, while Omar Torrios is kind of the public face of the administration, that kind of deal. But is he doing it at his directive? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. He's doing everything because of and for Omar Torrios. It's just Torrios doesn't realize that Manuel Noriega is really doing it for himself. Gotcha. So elected on May 12th, 1968, Arnulfo Arias was actually a populist and he ran on an agenda of an anti-military platform which really did not align at all with Omar Torrios and Manuel Noriega's political ideals or aspirations. 11 days after Arias had assumed the office of presidency of Panama on October 1st, 1968, Noriega found out that Arias would be spending the evening at the movie theater. Now, this is when Manuel Noriega would call upon his old boss, Boris Martinez, the leader of the National Guard, to send Arias a note claiming that soldiers from the National Guard were about to surround the theater and kill Arias. This, of course, 
just like Manuel Noriega wanted, caused Arias to flee the theater and go hide in the canal zone without conflict. This action was actually straight out of the military training manuals that Manuel Noriega had studied in his classes at the School of the Americas. After he was defeated, a military junta of two colonels would be installed to control the nation temporarily, with Arias fleeing, like I mentioned, to the canal zone for the safety of the Americans that were offering to him. So Arias didn't have any military of his own, like anybody protecting him? No, he did. He just thought that the National Guard was against him. Because remember, he gotcha. had he had gotten to the presidency because of his platform of anti-military. So he just assumed when he had found out that the National Guard was coming to kill him, he assumed that none of his soldiers would protect him. He thought that the coup was all-encompassing. That's why he fled. Got out of there as quickly as he could. Gotcha. Even though no no soldiers were coming to kill him. Gotcha. Okay, just uh, just a uh, psychology or psychological tactic there to scare him, more or less. Oh, definitely. I mean, without firing a shot, they took over the country. Hmm. Now, taking charge after the coup had occurred... Omar Torrios, a lieutenant colonel in the National Guard at the time, would actually take control of the coup behind the scenes after the fact, even expelling both of the coup perpetrators, Boris Martinez and Jose Humberto Ramos, to Miami on February 23rd, 1969. This was after promoting himself to full bird colonel, and he would make himself also the commandant of the National Guard. Gave himself a hell of a promotion there. Um, oh, definitely. He, <laughs> so he sent him to Miami to have a good time, huh? I Basically, mean, I, yeah. Yeah, I so, mean, it looks like he expelled them, but in all reality, they were going to soak up the sun and hang out with old people. Definitely, yeah. Well, I mean, back then it would have been uh, just as the cocaine was starting to filter in. Yeah, so, they might have met OJ. Could have, yeah, exactly. They could have <laughs> went and caught some Dolphins games and whatnot. <laughs> so basically, yeah, even though he wasn't the main person at the start of the coup, he quickly took over. And with the help of the American backers, Torrios would get two of his rivals out of the country, who were actually the ones who kind of really started and led the coup. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. After Torrios took the behind-the-scenes control of the coup, he would wipe out opposition from his rivals, both in the military and the civilian arenas, shuttering the Panamanian legislature, also wiping out dissent in the press, uh, actually closing three newspapers owned by the former president's brother. He would also take over the country's oldest newspaper, La Estrella de Panama, realigning the formerly free press into a mouthpiece for the government. I mean, this right here sounds almost exactly like the other dictator you've covered on a different episode, like almost like textbook doing the exact same thing. Yes, this is textbook. You get rid of the civilian government. You get rid of your opposition in the military. You take over the press. Yeah. So you're basically just tearing pillars down and building them back up to strengthen your own government. Right. Like I mentioned before, Manuel Noriega would become chief of military intelligence finding himself as Omar Torrios's right-hand man, just as Torrios had positioned himself as the military dictator of Panama. As the intelligence chief, 
Noriega would decimate the opposition to Omar Torrios, expelling some 1,300 Panamanians from the country who opposed Torrio. Also taking care of the boss's dirty work, ordering the death of opposition leader and priest Jesus Hector Gallego Herrera, ordering his body be thrown from a helicopter. Now this is another sign of Noriega's American training. Jesus, how much power does this fucking priest have that he had to do this shit? You gotta understand, with these countries, a lot of them is just coming from the intelligentsia. Like, um, maybe an influential priest, or a doctor, uh, like Che Guevara, or possibly, you know, a military general. Basically, uh, if you ever played the game Tropico, uh, a lot of the opposition you'll get comes from people with college degrees, you know, so like a journalist or, you know, somebody who's probably just like he wasn't well-connected. Gotcha. Okay. During the 1970s, Manuel Noriega would become well-known around Latin America and the United States as being the most feared man in Panama for his actions in destroying the opposition to the military dictatorship. So this is kind of where now everybody knows who this guy is. Everyone's finding out kind of about this um, henchman in the shadows, Manuel Noriega. Okay. With Noriega taking care of his light work, Omar Torrios actually positioned himself as a populist, becoming a voice for the poor against the wealthy oligarchs in Panama, redistributing lands and setting up schools and public works to benefit the poor. With his longest lasting legacy, would actually be, though, signing a treaty that would see the Panama Canal given back to the country of Panama in 1999. Also, before he was supposed to be getting out of office in 1984, Omar Torrios actually set up kind of almost a civilian government transition that would have happened, though he did not live to see it. So what is with his change of feeling like he wants to help out the poor people all of a sudden? Or is this just to, like, have them on his side? I believe it's more to have him on his side. It's almost like a man of the people kind of situation. Uh, It works really well in these countries, kind of to, in these countries where they don't have a lot. If the poor see that you're on their side, and he also did the thing, too, where He prosecuted rich people for their crimes, which if you're in the back pocket of rich people, you don't do. So if you are seen as someone who prosecutes the wealthy, then the poor see that as a signal that you're obviously on their side. So they'll fight for you. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, it's it's like, that's about the exact opposite of America, except for they claim they're against the rich people to get the poor people on their side, but they're actually conning the poor people into helping them support the rich people. Interesting dynamic there. Yeah, that's usually how it works in America. (laughs) Now, Omar Torrios would rule until his unexpected, really tragic plane crash death in 1981. Uh, Like I mentioned, happened three years before he was set to give power back to the civilian leadership. This, in Panama, caused political havoc, which would see Manuel Noriega actually take control over the military dictatorship of his former boss in 1983. Now that plane crash, though officially ruled as an accident, was highly suspected to be an operation to assassinate the dictator. 
this done by placing a bomb inside of the plane, which blew up, killing everyone inside. Uh, the Russians actually reported immediately that it was the Americans who perpetrated the assassination, though it is also speculated that possibly Noriega may have been personally involved, as he's the one who took over control of the investigation right away, also really controlling its outcome. It's always been speculated that he possibly could have been the one who rubbed out Omar Torrios. I mean, I could uh, totally see that happening. Now, Torrios wasn't on the same plane that Leonard Skinner was, because I think they went down around this time. No, it was okay. a different plane crash. He probably yep. wasn't a big fan of Leonard Skinner, I imagine. Oh, I imagine. No, so we're actually going to talk about his favorite music. His oh. favorite music was opera, actually. Uh, Manuel Noriega's was opera. So I'm guessing that Torrios probably was about the same. Wasn't a huge American uh, metal fan. Not, he not a fan of uh, Southern rock there. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's not down with Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> no. So Noriega himself, during his 1991 drug trials, claimed that he had actually had documentation that the plane crash was orchestrated by the Americans, though the judge in that case did not allow the documentation to be presented as evidence. Apparently, he cited that the information would violate the Classified Information Procedures Act, which huh. I kind of read up on it a little bit. I still have no idea what that is. So, it, I mean, if it was Noriega, I imagine it was just a piece of paper that says the Americans did it or something like that. Like it was written in crayon. I don't know about that. Noriega had a vast network of spies. So, so it might have been colored I imagine, pencils. I imagine he had some pretty good intel. Okay. I could totally see the CIA doing that. I mean, they this was kind of that was kind of their bread and butter back then. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's the situation is either you want to use diplomacy, the military, or you send in the jackals to, you know, do something a little bit more like surgical. Like, using a scalpel rather than a, a cleaver, you know? Yeah. During Manuel Noriega's time as Trios' right-hand man, Noriega had began his relationship with the Colombian drug cartels, as I previously mentioned, allowing them to use Panama as a hub for the money that was being made from the sale of illegal narcotics, with Noriega allowing drug money to be stored in Panamanian banks. Also, he would allow cartels cover against DEA investigations due to Noriega's special relationship with the United States government. After Noriega took control of the military dictatorship in 1983, however, he actually nationalized the bank that same year. This would actually limit the ability for the Panamanians to shield dirty money as criminals were now worried about Noriega stealing their money. Gotcha. Okay. So he probably would have been pals with um, old, uh, what the hell's his name? Why can't I think of it right now? Pablo. The movie Blow? Pablo, yeah. Oh, Pablo Escobar. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This was the Colombian drug cartel at this time was ran by Pablo Escobar, famously. Yeah, so they probably knew each other. Oh, I imagine. Definitely, yeah. For the next six years... Manuel Noriega would turn the country of Panama into a haven for the Colombian drug cartel run by Pablo Escobar, while at the same time expanding the size of the Panamanian military with equipment and funds coming from the United States. 
Uh, the United States were actually looking for allies at this time in the fight against leftist revolutionaries in neighboring Latin American countries. One instance, famously, is the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, which Manuel Noriega actually allowed the United States to use his country as a launch point for the delivery of weapons and equipment going to the Contras in Nicaragua. Also, he allowed the United States to set up listening posts along the border between the two countries in order for the United States intelligence networks to spy on the Sandinistas. So this is kind of the type of thing that the Americans or the CIA had invested so much time in were events like this, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, never has an investment like that paid off so well. I mean, imagine they started paying this guy a little bit of money back when he was a cadet just for some information. 30 years later, he is the leader of this country and you are using his country as a launch point to fight the Sandinistas. It... It just worked out so well for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing I was going to say as well, I'm sure he was, you know, obviously he was helping the drug cartels, right? I can almost guarantee you, 83, this was like the start of launching off of American greed. Um, I guarantee there's big business or rich people hiding their money there too. Oh, definitely. There was, I mean, like I mentioned, there was cartel people, there was other dictators in, you know, other Latin American countries, money coming from around the world into Panama. Uh, before he nationalized the banks, there were hundreds of these hundreds of these unregulated banks that I was reading about that were just taking this money in, uh, kind of like as a tax shelter to clean up dirty money or to hide ill-gained money and then kind of just spread it back out so you have a little checkbook. Yeah. You know? Hide it for tax purposes. The problem is, once he nationalized the banks, everyone got a little little skittish about what was happening to the money. I believe in the movie Blow, um, all of his money gets stolen by Noriega. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the uh, gambit you run is. <laughs> yep, sure, he'll let you definitely. have it, but he's going to steal it eventually. Yeah, I mean, before he nationalized the banks, though, it was well known that your money was safe in Panama. You know, you never had to worry. They were never going to, like, let the Americans come in and take it. It was kind of like this oasis for shit money, basically. <laughs> now, I, I didn't really write a ton about it, but it's another horrible thing that he did. It's kind of par for the course of what Manuel Noriega was doing. But I mentioned before about the priest that he had killed during the time of his boss, the former dictator, uh, Torrios. There was actually someone that he killed, which may have led to his downfall. It happened in 1985, and the man was named Hugo Spatafora Franco. He was actually kind of a very important person throughout Latin America. He was really telling a lot of people about Manuel Noriega's association with, you know, drug cartels and a lot of this, the shit that Manuel Noriega was doing, all of the trafficking. Spatafora was detained actually by Noriega's forces when he was entering Panama uh, from Costa Rico in September 1985, which was a great month and a great year. This is when <laughs> I was born in. Uh, his, uh, his, uh, his decapitated body was later found in a post office bag. The autopsy later found actually that Spadofora's stomach was full of blood that he had ingested during the slow severing of his head. 
So they took him out in the most painful way they possibly could. Holy shit, that is brutal. Yeah, they slowly decapitated him, basically. Yikes. I I mean, I guess if you're going to go out that way, you just want him to do it real quick. But uh, God, that is, that's horrible. Yeah, for the crime of reporting on the bad deeds of Manuel Noriega, I mean, I'm... I'm on uh, I'm two of his website, two of the websites that are talking about it, and some of the stuff is so bad, like the torture, uh, ribs broken, he was garroted, uh, testicles were swollen, like beyond belief. It was just horrible. Uh, some of the crazy amount of torture that this man went through, ordered by Manuel Noriega. Mm, poor son of a bitch, Jesus. Yeah, it's one of the big thing that leads to Manuel Noriega's downfall is mm. news of this murder. Okay. Now, beginning in the late 1980s, the United States was starting to get worried that Noriega may have been double dealing with America's enemies, selling possible American secrets to the Cubans, all the while helping the American-backed group, the Contras, fight the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Uh, this is all part of the very famous Iran-Contra affair, which eventually we're going to have an episode dedicated to. It's very interesting. Uh, this obviously involved drugs for weapons for, you know, money. Mm. A triangle trade between Iran, Nicaragua, and the United States. So is there confirmation that he was, Noriega was, uh, like, I, I guess, double dipping uh, with, America's enemies? Yes. There okay. is, um, it's kind of well known that it wasn't just the CIA that he was selling secrets to. It was also Cubans and Russian bloc countries, Soviet bloc countries. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. He was helping out the commies, basically. So by 1989, the Bush administration was completely through with Manuel Noriega. And by the 20th of December, 1989, the United States military invaded Panama. They actually fought for about six weeks against the Panamanian Defense Forces, ending General Noriega's military career. Uh, he would take refuge in the Vatican Embassy, where the U.S. would use some odd tactics to try to expel him from that embassy. Okay, did they put little pieces of cheese out that led to a box I was going <laughs> to capture him? Yeah, possibly. Okay. Now, uh, it was kind of actually what the what was happening a lot. Uh, they, they did it at Waco. They did it at a few different places, uh, some of the things that they were doing. But after Noriega entered the Vatican Embassy on Christmas Eve, uh, physical extraction, obviously in another country's sovereign ground, was not allowed. Uh, the military commanders at the scene decided to surround the embassy with loudspeakers creating what they called a musical barrier around the building. Now, the radio station that they used to play music into the embassy on that first day was, of course, Christmas music. Though, the next day, the radio station started taking some requests from soldiers in the area, and it was decided that heavy metal and rock songs would be used to try to push the deposed leader out of the building. And this was done at very high volumes. Okay, I... Okay, this is, I know, the Vatican Embassy, I'm assuming this is the Catholic Church, right? Yes. So the okay. Vatican is obviously its own country, and they have embassies around the world. 
Uh, one of them, I guess, was in Panama City. So wouldn't they be more offended by the heavy metal than Noriega was? Well, possibly, but the thing is they were allowing him to stay there. So it's kind of one of those situations where it's like, fuck them, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. So some of the songs that were used to try to expel Noriega out of the building were Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, <laughs> Wanted, Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi, The End by The Doors, Panama from Van Halen, Danger Zone from Kenny Loggins, and Tom Petty's Refugee. All right. Yeah, they're really trolling them here, aren't they? Yeah, so just that's a small sampling. But I imagine it was just 24-7 of you know, the highest decibel music you can get, you know, the speakers were turned up as loud as they could. And then hearing these songs wouldn't be very good if you were trying to sleep. I'm going to say this, the, if you're going to play that Christmas music that loud for that long, I would give up in a heartbeat. Oh, I'd be gone that first day. Yeah, I I would just shut it off. Just walk outside the, just be like, no, shut it off. Honestly, if I was a worker inside of that embassy and they were blasting Christmas music, I would probably bag them. And take him outside. Like, (laughs) here, turn that fucking music off. Here's your fucking asshole. So, technically, the workers at retail stores are stronger than Manuel Noriega because they have to endure Christmas music for almost three months straight uh, of the same songs over and over. So, let's give give a hand to the retail workers who are able to uh, live through that three months of that terrible music. Oh, we all know that those people, you know, they lost their soul a long time ago. Yeah. Withered and died having to work retail. (laughs) But yeah, definitely the moment that Halloween is over, they start that Christmas music. Yeah, unfortunately. It was hate going to stores at that time. So after everything was said and done, in all 23 U.S. soldiers were actually killed during the operation, including two that were supposedly killed by friendly fire. 324 more soldiers were injured. As far as the Panamanians go, between about 300 to 845 soldiers were killed or injured, and there was an estimated 500 civilian casualties. Damn. Okay. I mean, that's a wide gap of casualties there. Poor civilians just getting caught in the crossfire, I'm guessing. Yeah. It wasn't that prolific of a war. It only took place for six weeks, and from what it sounds like, it was mostly precision airstrikes that took out most of the Panamanian forces at first. But, yeah, it looks like the ground attack, about 500 civilians got in the way of the fighting. Mm. After a few days of inundating Noriega with rock music, the White House actually called them up and told them to stop because it was considered, as they said, to be in bad taste to use such methods. But nevertheless, Noriega would surrender on January 3rd. This would end his tenure as a strongman of Panama after six years. Okay, so uh, how long was Omar in power? So he took power in 1968 and, well, behind the scenes power. He didn't take full power until 1969, February 1969, and he ended his reign at his death in 1981. He was in power for about 12-ish years. Okay. All right. So Noriega, definitely not nearly as long. Oh, no, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, if he would have maybe played ball a little bit better, uh, he might have been in power for longer. The weird thing is 
George H.W. Bush was actually leader of the CIA during a lot of the time that he was the right-hand man of Omar Torrios. So it's kind of funny that it turns out it was George H.W. Bush who took down Manuel Noriega. Almost kind of like it was a personal slight because it was supposed to be one of his guys, you know? Right, right. So after his capture, Manuel Noriega would go on trial for drug crimes and money laundering with his actions for the Colombian cartels. Being found guilty in a Miami court in 1991, he was sentenced to 40 years, though ultimately Noriega would be freed in 2010. This was just so that he could actually be sent to France and to Panama for trials in those countries. Uh, He would be sent to France sentenced to another spout of uh, some years for his crimes, but then eventually he would be sent to Panama, uh, where he would actually spend the rest of his life until he was diagnosed with a brain tumor in March of 2017. Uh, Two months later, he would die after complications uh, suffered from surgery. So he didn't die that long ago. No, he actually just died a few years ago. But here's the thing, though. March 2017... That was during prime Trump coverage. So it's amazing that we you wouldn't hear anything when Trump was in power. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't remember hearing that at all. Although maybe that our generation probably didn't know that much about Noriega. Unless you studied him, you know what I mean? That's true too. But I just remember there was a time when Trump basically decided to run for presidency. And then from that moment until COVID started, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News didn't talk about anything else except for Trump until 2020, early 2020. So, <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't... I love that ad rev. <laughs> you know what it's about in America, Phil. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I wasn't really paying much attention to the news during that time. But uh, yeah, it... It seemed like that would have been pretty big news if this guy died. Yeah, you would think, but didn't hear anything about it. And I was watching the news quite a bit during that time. Didn't hear anything about this. It is weird because you, to think about when they a rumor started swirling around that Kim Jong-un was possibly dead. Uh, that blew up, but this guy actually died and he didn't hear anything. But I guess yeah, Kim Jong-un's th- in power still technically. And Kim Jong-un had something you could parlay that into Trump. Noriega, you couldn't parlay into Trump at all. So there's no need to talk about it because it didn't involve Trump. Do you think Trump wishes he was Noriega? Does he wish he was Noriega? Yeah. Uh, I don't. I think Trump was probably more powerful than Noriega was. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm saying like Noriega pulled off a successful coup. Trump was unable to. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the Noriega Noriega didn't try to take over the United States in 2020. He took over Panama in 1983. So a little different different story. The Panamanian National Guard versus uh, a couple thousand rednecks. Um, Yeah, I, I think the Panamanian National Guard was a little more powerful. What would you say? Well, yeah, and it was a smaller country, too. Right. So it's a lot easier to take over the country when basically there's so few people. It's such a small land area. And 
basically you're already he was already in control of it because they already had the national guard on their side basically the entire defense force was already on their side so i gotta say i have one thing i wish that toby keith had been around when they were blaring that music in at him uh i heard his song he released after 9-11 happened i don't know if you remember that I think it's called like Red, White, and Blue or something like that. Um, oh, basically every country song for the next five years after yeah. 9-11. Yeah. Well, the guy at work is a big Toby Keith fan, and he showed me his newest songs. Holy shit. I, it was bad. He His songs were, if you need help, just ask a Marine or something like that. I'm like, Ugh, okay. <laughs> and he had... Something about being a proud rebel redneck and all of this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Toby, that a national uh, disaster couldn't help escalate your album sales like the last one. But you need to give up, buddy. Yeah, well, you can. I mean, that's the sad thing. Uh, Before then, you know, I didn't really listen to a lot of country music. But before 9-11, it was, you know, country music was all about a lot of different shit. And then for, what, five to ten years after 9-11, every country song on the radio was the exact same song over and over again, basically. Ah, uh, yeah, that's American <laughs> country music right there for you. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> all right, Phil, any parting words on uh, Mr. Noriega here? No, I just didn't realize he was such a big shitbag. Uh, you know, I knew that he was a kind of an asshole when it came to money laundering, drugs, and kind of like the subversive shit that he did with his people. I didn't realize that he was so involved. You never hear normally about these guys being hands-on involved with the terrible crimes like he was, though. Yeah, he was a uh, sick, sick son of a bitch. When George Bush ultimately took him down, right, all I could think about is... It's basically, if we were to watch Star Wars, right? Let's say Mm. Bush is Obi-Wan Kenobi training Anakin. Anakin is Noriega. Except for, in the end, Obi-Wan Kenobi finally kills Darth Vader. That would be basically what happened here, right? He raised him, he trained him, he's responsible for him, and then he ultimately had to take him down. Oh, yeah, could be. It would be more of a... uh... Like the emperor taking, you know. Oh, yeah, I suppose you are right because. Yeah, the emperor training Anakin to, you know, do that stuff. I forgot. We don't want to give H.W. Bush the role of a good guy. No, not at all. Yeah, Mm. you'd be more the emperor. (laughs) And and I guess you would say fucking Obi-Wan would probably be Tarios more than. There you go. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, actually, maybe Yoda would have been because <laughs> he really hit right. in the shadows. <laughs> we have another great analogy from Cody. He just oh, spits yeah. them out. He's yeah, coming yeah. at you full force. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, Phil, where can they uh, reach us at if they want to talk they to can us? Hit, they can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, it's always great to hear from everybody. Uh, love any great like show ideas you might have. If it's good, you might even hear it, you know, coming up really quick. Always looking for good ones. 
better way to get a hold of us probably is on our Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, same thing. It's great to see all the likes, you know, everyone responding whenever we post anything. Also great to see all the messages, you know, hearing when you guys are listening to the show. It's amazing. Uh, Cody and I both have our own Instagram accounts. Mine is SD Podville. Cody, you got one? Yeah, you can follow me at Cody's Above on Instagram. Uh, the last thing we need you guys to do is to log on to iTunes, leave the show a five-star review. doesn't really matter what you say. Just uh, whatever, type something in, hit five stars. If you are a Spotify user, as we alluded to last week, they do, know, do now have a rating system as well. So hit the follow and then hit the five stars on our show. That one, you don't even have to type anything. You just give us the stars, and we greatly appreciate all those who have taken the time to do it before we even realize spotify reviews existed so thank you all for that Uh, otherwise guys we'll see you next week thanks guys